And this morning will be from Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Pleasure to be speaking to you this morning. We have some visitors with us. Certainly appreciative of your presence. We appreciate everyone's presence this morning. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing with your morning, and it is, it is good that you have chosen to come together with God's people to study a portion of his word together and seek to make application of it. This morning, the topic of our study will be noticing and appreciating God's planning, appreciating the the brilliance and the completeness of the plannings and the preparations that God has made. Uh, Dave asked me what the topic was and what if I had any songs in mind. I didn't have any songs in mind. And I wasn't sure what he was going to come up with, but I, I'm impressed. We Praise God. We certainly can praise God as we consider the plans he's put together, how he accomplished what he set out to accomplish, that song, Be Still and Know That I Am God. How? Why? Like, how do we know that he is God? Like, the more time we spend noticing what God has accomplished, the more confidence we can have that he truly is what he says he is and that he can deliver the salvation to us that he has promised. Why else might we have a study like this? Why, why look at God's planning? I, it occurs to me that some denominational error results from, you might say, a lack of appreciation or a lack of recognition of God's planning. If you consider premillennialism, well, they think Jesus came to set up an earthly kingdom. He was rejected. It didn't work out. The church is plan B. The church is not plan B. The church is, as we can notice from Ephesians chapter 3, it's referred to as the eternal purpose of God. The church was the intent. Um, we notice across the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be rejected and he would suffer. It's not a reflection of God's failure. It is a reflection of God knowing what was going to happen and knowing that he could exceed, succeed through that. And so this morning, let's take a few moments and appreciate the brilliance of God's planning. Um, you might sometimes hear an expression pertaining to military planning that says, no plan survives contact with the enemy. See, the military leaders, they do the best they can to anticipate what's happening, plan, prepare, and then the bullet starts flying and they figure out what's really gonna happen and perhaps try to wing it. That's not what we see in scripture. We see God setting forth plans far ahead of time, knowing what would happen, and then carrying through with that. So we'll be looking mostly at the book of Acts, uh, specifically Acts chapter 10, where a scripture reading came from, but it's going to take us some time to get back to the book of Acts. Let's start with noticing the broader context, and I guess we could say very broad context of Christianity. Um, 
way back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, there's a warning God gives to Satan. He shall crush you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. It's a reference to Satan attempting to thwart the Christ, referring to Satan's activities as bruising him on the heel. Yep, you can be a hassle. You're going to be a nuisance, an inconvenience. But Jesus is a real threat to you. He will bruise you on the head. Some translations say crush you on the head. Way back at the very beginning, God could see what Satan was going to do. He knew he would try to thwart his plans, and he knew that he would fail. Across the Old Testament, you know, Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, we see references to the suffering servant, the Messiah, and the difficulties he would face. We also see things like Psalms chapter 2, which is, I think I've mentioned this before, one of my favorite passages. Uh, let, let's just read a little bit from Psalms chapter 2. Speaking of the, the coming Messiah, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people devising vain things. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. And it goes on. The Lord knows what they're going to do. He knows they're going to reject, uh, reject Christ. And he knows that he will succeed through that. So, while perhaps no earthly plan survives contact with the enemy, I would suggest to you that God's plans do certainly survive contact with the enemy. So Jesus' coming has been exceptionally well planned. God knew that Jesus would be rejected, but God knew that was a necessary part of his plan to redeem us, that the Christ must be sacrificed to pay that debt of sin. Him being crucified required him being rejected. In Ephesians chapter 3, as I mentioned a moment ago, refers to the church as the eternal purpose of God. This is his eternal purpose, his eternal plan. He's been thinking about this a long time, preparing for this a long time. And even though he doesn't explain every little detail to us, there's a lot that we can notice. If we'll take a step back, poke and prod a bit, there's a lot of things that we can notice fit together so beautifully well. We should not mistake the persecution of the early church as uncertainty. We should expect God's plan was prepared for the persecution of the early church. We might notice that persecution served to disperse the Christians as they fled, and it, it dispersed Christianity. I, for some reason, uh, whenever that thought comes to mind, I think of um, anthills. When we were little kids, we were in Georgia for a while, and there's big anthills, Georgia and Florida. If you want to kill the ants, you need to like, pour some poison down into the anthill. If a little boy wants to try to kill the ants and he goes and kicks the anthill, he can persecute them. And what happens? Now there's ants all over the backyard, right? 
Satan can persecute the Christians. First century church, he did. And what did he do? It's like kicking the anthill. The Christians scatter, and Christianity scatters. And it pops up everywhere, right? Let's see. So let's start working on getting closer to the book of Acts. Um, as we start to come into the book of Acts, we might notice, think about in Acts chapter 2, it's where we point out to see that the churches started the day of Pentecost. So much we could notice there. But just the timing of that. Think about all the, the nationalities that have come there. Jews from all over the world speaking various religions. And so the church starts when Jews from all over have come together. They all get the opportunity to become Christians right as the church is starting. And then what do they do? They go home. Christianity starts with being, you know, initiated by people all over the area, all over the world, right from the very beginning. As we just read through it, story after story, interaction after interaction, it's easy to think of it as happenstance. If you take a step back, start to poke on the details a little bit, we can notice that it is coincidence after coincidence after coincidence that works out so well. And at some point, we need to decide, well, that's not coincidence, right? God knows what he's doing. The eternal purpose of God was well thought out, well planned, and as it begins to spread, it is done with expert uh, planning and execution. Let's continue on. As, as we think about looking past Acts chapter 2, there's a solid base of Christianity that starts to form. We see uh, persecution starting to pick up. Some will think of Christianity as a sect of the Jews, right? You see that reference occasionally. They, it's almost like they think of it as there's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Christians, and they're all just different types of Jews. That's not what Christianity is, but it's going to take them a while to, to see that. As we start to come to the middle of the book of Acts, it's about to hit rapid growth and start to spread across the world. And there's three conversions right there in Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10 that are interesting. They're a bit different than most of the conversions we see because God specifically chooses three people. You know, oftentimes we'll see an apostle sent to an area. They might be sent to some area specifically, but then who are they teaching? Whoever they can. And they're opportunistically spreading the gospel. In Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see three people very specifically chosen. So let's take a few moments and consider why. And we'll start to see how this all fits together into a brilliant plan. So, Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. As we start to look there, all around about verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. He arose and went. And then verse 29, as he gets there, the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So the Spirit is directing Philip 
very specifically to an individual. Who? Well, it's the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Verse 27 refers to him as a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all his, her treasure. So, this is a powerful guy. This is an influential guy, right? In charge of all her treasure. If you think about someone in charge of a government's treasure these days, you might picture an accountant, right? An academic, someone, is, someone more like that. Uh, we have very mature, well-developed government institutions. Physical security of um, the treasures typically delegated at this point today. Um, but what about back then? They, they can't just put all of the queen's treasure in Fort Knox and trust that it's safe. One would imagine that the person who is, it says, in charge of all her treasure a rather diverse set of responsibilities, right? It's a person with authority, a person who, it, you might think of the, the phrase you sometimes hear, one throat to choke, right? Like in businesses, sometimes they want one throat to choke, like one vendor who's responsible for this, and no matter what goes wrong, it's their fault. Looks like that's him, in charge of all her treasure. So this is a guy accustomed to being listened to, accustomed to having influence. What else do we know about him? Verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's come a long ways, hasn't he? This is a very devout man. Interesting that being a eunuch, he would not be allowed into the innermost parts of the temple. He's come a long ways to Jerusalem to worship. And when he gets there, he can't even go in as far as the other Jews. That's devotion, isn't it? That is a lot of effort to do what he can. And so who did God get here? A powerful, influential guy, a very devoted person, a visible person. And then presumably he's going to go home. And what's he going to do? Continue to influence people? continue to be the authoritative man that he is now as a Christian. We don't know what he did when he got back to Ethiopia, but based on what we know about him, based on God selecting him specifically, one would imagine that he's probably being a rather effective Christian when he gets home. It would be out of character for him not to be. So it's no surprise that we see the Ethiopian eunuch selected here to become a Christian right as Christianity is about to start spreading worldwide. Let's continue on. Who's next? Um, Acts chapter 9. Saul, who we, we better know as the Apostle Paul. We know him pretty well, don't we? Very easy to see why God would specifically reach out to him and select him to become a Christian. You might be thinking about how effective he was at spreading the gospel. All the churches he started, all the churches he built up. You might think about how much of your New Testament he wrote. How much less we would have had he not become a Christian, had he not um, 
shared the gospel and written down so much of it for us. Saul's value to Christianity, though, it's, it's not just in what he became. There is enormous value in what Saul became, enormous value for Christianity and for everyone. But there's also a lot of value in what he was, because what he was before was a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, he would say. You might be turning to Galatians chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses from there. Because Saul, he was famous. He was, you might say, infamous. He was well known. In Galatians 1 and verse 14, it says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Being extremely zealous in his persecution of the Christians, right? His understanding of Judaism. Now, he was wrong, but he was very effective and very visible. He was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries, right? A very visible person. He doesn't lack courage. He doesn't lack motivation or zeal. He's very effective at whatever he sets his mind to. But what he set his mind to is persecuting the Christians visibly. Like the Ethiopian, he's an influential leader, just an influential leader at bad things at this time. But people watch him, they respect him, his opinion carries weight. And when someone like that goes from persecuting the church to leading the church and sharing the gospel, think about the influence that would have on other people, right? Will that give them something to talk about? You look down a little further in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, but only they kept hearing about the one who persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. They kept hearing. You know, we live in a time where news is often sensational, right? It's a new flashy thing on the media every day, it seems like, and Something can seem so important and get so much attention, and then in a few weeks, it's like we all forget and we move on. So, okay. Saul switched sides. Visible guy switched sides. How long do you think that lasted? And how, yeah, how long did it go on? How long did it take for people to know him? Well, if you look up one verse, in verse 22, it says he was still unknown by sight in the churches in Judea, which were in Christ. So, time has passed. They don't know him, and they're still talking about him. Look up a few more verses in verse 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem, became acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him 15 days. Saul is converted to Christianity. We've got at least three years passing, and still the fact that the man who had so effectively persecuted the church has now become so effective at furthering the church and promoting it. Three years later, they're still talking about him and still encouraging one another with that. Think about the big changes that are going to be asked of so many people as they become Christians. People tend to get set in their ways, right? Oh, I, too big of a change. I, I'm in too deep now. I just can't change. No. 
Saul, it would seem, became a very well-known example of how drastic of a change some people would need to make and how successful they could be at making that change. Saul, extremely effective at Christianity. Easy to see why, as Christianity is about to explode across the world and spread so rapidly, why did the Lord reach out and grab him specifically? God knew what he was getting, right? So at this point, what have we got? We've got the eunuch heading off to Ethiopia, it seems, going home, presumably. Saul has all the devout Jews upset. He's a traitor. The Christians, once they believe he's really converted, they can't quit talking about it. He's this great source of encouragement. Where are we at now? Well, the Jews have a bit of a challenge. They don't realize it yet. But there's a big challenge that they're about to have to get over. Christianity, it says, was to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And as the Gentiles are about to be welcomed into Christianity, that's going to present a very big challenge for the Jews. It's easy for us to nod our heads and look past that and just keep going because for us it's such a well-settled fact, right? We've been reading that all our lives. Most of us presumably are Gentiles and so near and dear to our hearts. We, we embrace that concept early on and accept it and it, it's easy to think, ah, why did it take him so long to catch on to that? Try to look at it from the Jewish perspective. In the Old Testament, Several times they would mingle Judaism with pagan religions and they'd get in trouble, right? Seems like they've finally gotten past that. They're not, apparently not, mingling Judaism with the pagan religions anymore, but people so often have difficulty not overshooting when they try to correct. You know, you make a mistake and then tend to overcorrect. Well, now it looks like they've gone to the point of having some uh, racial bigotry. You might remember phrases like, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? They avoided them. Um, and so they have this big aversion to the Gentiles. And it's going to be a challenge for the Jews to get past that. Jesus had been foreshadowing it. You know, in John chapter 4, his interactions with the Samaritan woman you might think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who did Jesus make the hero of that parable? A Samaritan? He's been hinting at it. But still, they're going to have some difficulty accepting this. So let's look now to Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius. And let's see, let's, let's begin noticing a few verses uh, from... Beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So it appears he's not Jewish. He has not converted to Judaism. But he is in that category of what's referred to as God-fearers. He's not taken the step of becoming a proselyte Jew, but he has a very deep respect for God. 
interesting that he is a centurion. He's well known. That, one would imagine, would cause some resentment among the Jews. They are, at this point, an occupied people. They, for the most part, don't think well of the Romans. And yet, if you skip down to verse 22, in the middle of verse 22, it refers to him as a God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. What higher compliment could there be for a Roman in the first century times than to be well spoken of by all the Jews, a Roman centurion, and yet well spoken of by the Jews. He is an excellent choice to be the first Gentile welcomed directly into Christianity. You might think about how people today might try to go about changing a law. If someone thinks a law is bad, and so some legal group imagine they're going to sue in court and try to establish this law is bad, we need to change it, unconstitutional or whatever. They select someone to be uh, the plaintiff in the case, right? What kind of person do they choose? Not a drug dealer or a murderer or a rapist or someone who everyone loves to hate. No, they try to select someone who's relatable, who people respect, who they'll have empathy for, they still have to make their case. But by choosing someone who is you know, endearing, they can maybe help people get over that transition. And so who has God chosen to be the first Gentile welcomed into Christianity? A devout, God-fearing Roman, well-spoken of by all the Jews, well-known, He's a great person, a great choice to help the Jews get through this hurdle. Now, who else is involved in this situation? It's Peter, right? The Apostle Peter. Man, we got to love Peter. He's, I want to call him gutsy. You know, he, he can be a bit impulsive. He gets into trouble sometimes, but the guy is fearless. Think about when they came to arrest Jesus. Who was it that pulled out their sword? and cut off the guy's ear? Yeah, that was Peter. He was wrong. That wasn't what he was supposed to do. But he was fearless in doing what he thought he ought to do. Right? We sometimes give him a hard time because he's the one who denied Christ, right? Oh, you've been so close to Jesus. You knew so much. How could you deny him? It appears at that time the rest of the disciples had left. That is, right as Jesus is being crucified, the rest seem to have scattered. It, it looks like, yeah, he, he denied the Lord, but it looks like he might have been the last, last one standing. He's hanging in there, right? The guy is fearless. You point him in the right direction, and he's going to take a run at it. You just need to get him in the right direction and not have him chopping people's ears off. So let's notice how difficult this was for Peter. Uh, we can skip down to uh, verse 9. Is that where I want to be? Yeah. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, oh, wait, is that where? Yeah. Went up to the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while 
they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up, and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Here comes impulsive Peter, blurting out. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again the voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So, what does Peter know now? There's something unholy. It used to be unholy. It says God cleansed it, so it was unholy. He is right in thinking, whatever the topic is here, it was unholy. But God has cleansed it. And he is not allowed to call it unholy anymore. And he's not sure what it is. And God's not just coming out immediately and telling him what's going to happen. God lets him sit and think about it for a while. In verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what the vision he had seen might be, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, we skipped over those verses, but Cornelius was told to send to where Peter is staying. Uh, they came, they asked for directions to Simon's house, and they're appearing at the gate now. So he's greatly perplexed. What's he perplexed about? Something's about to happen. He thinks it's unholy. God says it's not unholy anymore, and he can't call it unclean. And it's happened three times. He had this vision three times. And it's easy for us to read past it happening three times, but Peter's had things happen three times before, right? How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. And then what happened after? You might turn to John chapter 21 if you'd like to follow along. What happened after he denied the Lord three times? After the Lord comes back, in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He denied the Lord three times. He was greatly depressed or greatly distressed because after that, the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? And now three times the Lord has told him, don't call this unholy. And so he's reflecting on this, trying to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, let's continue on from verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men 
who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Lord said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They relayed to him Cornelius had received a vision and sent for them. He still doesn't know exactly what's going on. He's not objecting. He's going. The Lord tells him to go. And he goes. Um, let's see. Let's continue on. Let's skip down a bit through the next few verses. Well, the next day, verse 23, it's the next day they arose and went. Uh, and then the following day they entered Caesarea. They come to Cornelius. Cornelius is very excited in verse 25. He fell down and worshipped him. Peter says, stand up. I too am just a man. Then, let's see. Let's look at, starting again at verse 29. Let's start reading again. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. And so, I ask, for what reason have you sent me? He's still not clear. Right? We look at him and think, oh, come on, Peter. So obvious. People, everyone, us, you, me, we get stuck in our ways. He's kind of stuck in his mindset here, and it's going to take a bit before he finally recognizes it, just like we probably would if we were there. Cornelius said, four days ago at, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that the Lord has been, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Okay, Peter finally gets it. We are here to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now. God is not one to show partiality. Think back to when the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? He said, tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Do you think Peter thought he knew who the sheep were? He's probably thinking that was a reference to his fellow Jews. Now in verse 34, I most certainly now understand that God is not one to show partiality. In verse 34, Peter now understands just how broad those sheep are that he is to be shepherding. And he accepts it, right? Fearless Peter. You get him pointed in the right direction, and he's going to go. And so then it continues on, and he's preaching. What happens with him? Verse 30, excuse me, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. 
And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Since we're noticing the completeness of God's planning this morning, those miracles were quite effective at demonstrating God's approval, aren't they? Removes any doubt. The miracles demonstrate that God did this, that God approved of this. And so here, in Acts chapter 10, we see a family of Gentiles who received the gospel, they're preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them directly, like immediately. So verse 47, Peter answers, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? They've got a big hurdle. The, the Jews, the circumcised, who were with Peter, it says they were amazed. They'd been observing this all along, and still, they're shocked. The broader set of Jews, they have a big hurdle to get over. There's going to be resistance to this as we look forward to the, the next chapter. There's going to be some serious objections raised. And so think about how long and drawn out this has been. God didn't just nudge Peter, hey, it's time for the Gentiles to be welcomed into Christianity. Go talk to Cornelius, right? This isn't wrapped up in two or three verses. Peter's left to fret about it. Peter impulsively at first wants to argue with the Lord, oh no, I've never eaten anything unholy. Peter's drug along and then the Holy Spirit reveals God truly does approve of this. So now, looking at chapter 11, let's see, he's accused in verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, did a lot more than that. And let's see, what's the verse? Verse 4, but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence saying, and then he starts to explain the vision and the entire ordeal that happened, right? It's been a while to get Peter through this process, and now Peter has a complete story to convey to the rest of the Jews. He can explain how the vision, how he objected, how he was reluctant to this. The Lord told him not to object. The Lord sent him. He goes and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. Guys, what was I supposed to do, right? And so even though there's a bit of debate and dissension here, it settles down and they accept it. Let's notice verse 18. After Peter has shared the entire sequence of events, verse 18, when they had heard this, they quieted down. They weren't quiet before, but when they've heard this, they quieted down, glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. It's a rough transition. It's going to continue to come up a bit from time to time. There's going to be some debate among the Jews. What does it take for a Gentile to become a Christian? Think about how challenging that was for the Jews and how well this went, how successful Peter was in this. 
God knew exactly what he was doing. It was going to be rough. There's some debate and whatever, but God's plans work, right? No plan succeeds contact with the enemy except God's plans, right? God's plans make contact to the enemy, that are ruffled feathers, and it goes on, and it works. Where are we at now? We can notice people couldn't do this, right? Sometimes there's allegations made about, you know, well, anyone who doesn't believe in Scripture is obviously going to say people just made it up. The best answer to that is just start poking, right? Start digging into it, critiquing it, and appreciating how well it all fits together. It claims to be, the church claims to be the eternal purpose of God, and it is. It is well thought out, it is well planned. Who is selected to shepherd the church through this transition is impeccable, right? The Roman centurion who's well spoken of. Peter, the guy who will charge, you know, you point him in the right direction and the guy's fearless. He gets pointed in the right direction and he's going to take on, essentially, most of the Jewish Christians, right? And he will succeed. Peter wasn't perfect, though, right? He made mistakes, big mistakes. You made mistakes? You might think, oh, I'm just not cut out for this. I'm not up to this. I don't think you've done anything that can compete with Saul before we started calling him Paul, right? What he did to the church far exceeds what any of us have done. And God chose them. In that short list of people who God specifically chose at this time as the church is about to grow so rapidly, it's those men who were chosen. Because we tend to focus on what we get wrong, what other people get wrong, our failures and our mistakes. And, it's easy to tear ourselves down and think we're just not up for this. But God sees not just what we have been, but God sees what we can be. God sees the potential. Everyone else was terrified of Saul. And God saw what Saul would deliver for the Lord once he was corrected, once he was pointed in the right direction. So as we wrap up this morning, we can have enormous appreciation for God's planning, the completeness of it, the things he thinks about, even when he doesn't explain it to us. There is so much detail that he has anticipated and prepared for in its handle. We can have enormous respect on his ability to carry through on his promises. We can have enormous gratitude for the generosity he has offered us. We can have enormous generosity for the forgiveness, for God seeing not just what we have been, but seeing what we can be. You remember the phrase, go and sin no more, from the Gospels? You may have made some big mistakes. Okay, you can be forgiven. What's next, right? 
the Lord would tell you, go and sin no more. From this day forward, let's aim to do better. So if anyone here this morning, if perhaps you've fallen away or struggling or feeling like maybe you're not up for this, I don't think you can compete with Saul back when we called him Saul. So let's not worry so much about the past. Let's think about the future and what it is you're going to do forward. If anyone here this morning needs to take steps to make themselves right with the Lord, we would encourage you to come forward and make that known at this time while together we stand and sing the invitation song.